Hiff Player, bringing Harrogate International Festivals into your home. This event was recorded live at the Theakston Old Peculiar Crime Writing Festival. Enjoy. Good evening, it is so wonderful to be back. Thank you for the invitation. I'm, any excuse to come back to Harrogate is one I will always take up. Um, I thought I would talk about why do we write crime fiction? What is it about this particular genre that attracts us as writers? Um, I'm not gonna ask what it is that attracts you as readers, but there is an American author um, who, who came up with a Rambo character, and uh, David Morrell, I don't know if, you've, if he's ever been here, he has an interesting theory about why we write what we write. He says, most of us are trying to deal with something that happened in our childhood, and our books are constantly exploring the themes that have bothered us since we were children. And I told him, oh, that's bullshit, David. <laughs> Until I started thinking about it, and I realized, for me, he was absolutely correct because I, it was something that I had um, almost kind of put aside in my subconscious. But when I was a child, I was exposed to a murder. Um, and I had not thought about it in many years. I had a beloved family friend named Uncle Michael. He was a, he was a constant visitor to our house. He was a, a second father figure to me. And um, I, he was the sweetest, kindest man. I could always rely on him to help me with my homework. Um, and then when I turned 18, my beloved Uncle Michael was arrested for murdering his sister-in-law. He tortured her and he drowned her in the toilet. And, uh, I, and there was no doubt that he did it. I mean, the forensics were absolutely clear, and he went to prison. So the result is, I have a hard time believing that anybody um, who looks ordinary is not, there's, maybe there's a monster behind that mask. And I think this is why David Morrell's um, theory works for me, is that every time I write fiction, it always seems to hover towards crime, and I think it's because I'm trying to understand that basic question of what made Uncle Michael evil and why did I not see that ahead of time. And really, all crime fiction is about um, who is the monster behind which mask. So, in a way, it led me to look at things, look at the dark side of things. I'm always, and I, when I look at, at newspaper articles or television, um, I think I'm always seeing the dark side, and that's what makes a crime writer, is that we can see an ordinary day and we can still see the shadows inside that beautiful sunny day. Um, and when I look at, for ideas for my books, I find that it's always the darkness that I'm paying attention to. So here's an example of some of the ideas that I get and why um, they came about. It's because I'm always searching for that, that little shadow there in the, in the bright sunlight. Excuse me, I'm gonna get a glass of water. Okay, one, of, one example I can give you is I read maybe four newspapers a day if I can get my hands on them, looking for things that are interesting or, or weird or strange. So here's one article that came out of the Boston Globe. It was a story of a young, man, a young woman who was found dead in her bathtub. There were empty pill bottles and the doctors decided it's an accidental overdose. So they zipped her into a body bag and they sent her to the morgue and a couple of hours later, she woke up. Now, um, that is both 
weird and somehow strangely funny. I, I, yeah, I hear some of you are laughing. Um, but my, my first experience with that story was, I want to find out how often it happens. Um, so I did a Google search for mistaken for dead. And I found way too many cases of it. There was a child who was, um, um, had her death certificate signed when somebody noticed she was breathing. There was a young man hit by a car, spent the night in the morgue refrigerator when somebody heard him moving. The worst case I saw, uh, I read about, was in the 1970s in New York City. A man was lying on the autopsy table. The doctor was about to cut him open, and the dead man woke up. The doctor was so shocked, he had a heart attack and died. <laughs> See, it's not funny, but it is, right? Um, and lest you think that's, the, that's the, like the worst that can happen, there was a story in Brazil, and I know this because the American tabloids reported on it, um, a man in Brazil who was actually cut open on the autopsy table. The pathologist saw the heart was beating, so he, he um, immediately rushed the man back to the hospital, and he showed up in the National Enquirer holding open his shirt, showing his autopsy scar. Uh, years later. So um, it's this kind of a story that attracts me, um, not only because it's always, it gives me a little shiver, but it always makes me think, um, how did this happen and what happens next? And crime writers are always thinking, what's the worst that can happen? What would happen after this? Now, getting that idea of corpse wakes up in morgue, you get 12 different authors, they'll take it in 12 different directions. If you're a horror writer, you might say, uh, it's a zombie. Or you might say, it's a vampire. If you write spy novels, you might say, that's Jason Bourne, who's just faked his death, and now he's going to escape. Um, the way I took it was I had my medical examiner, Dr. Maura Isles, who some of you may be familiar with. Here's a noise in the morgue one night. She opens up a body bag. There's a young woman in there, and her eyes pop open. Um, so Maura sends this young woman off to the hospital, and there she does something nobody expects. She grabs the security guard's gun, she kills him, and she takes hostages in the hospital. And among the hostages she takes is a very pregnant homicide detective named Jane Rizzoli, who's there in her hospital gown, nobody knows that she's a cop, and she's terrified that she is going to be the next victim of this crazy woman who has a gun. Um, so that was the direction I took it in, but I'll bet you, you know, I don't know how many crime writers are in here because I can't even see your faces, but I'll bet you you would all take that opening of Corpse Wakes Up in Morgue and you would write your own amazing story. Um, the darkness that um, attracts me has also been uh, something that I've been curious about. And when I was in university, um, before I became a medical doctor, I, um, I majored in anthropology. And my particular interest was in Egyptology, and because I like dark things, mummies. I loved Egyptian mummies. And over the years, I have been corresponding with an Egyptologist whose job was to arrange CAT scans for every mummy in the United States. So one day he called me uh, and he said, we're about to do a CAT scan in New York. Do you want to come and watch it? Of course. I drove down to New York. We moved the mummy from the local museum, put it in a white van, and drove it to the local hospital. Yes, mummies are scanned on the same hospital CAT scans that you and I are scanned on. So here we wheel this mummy through the, through the lobby. And I, I understand that your waiting times at the National Health Service are a little long here. So here was this mummy 2,000 years later going to finally get its CAT scan. <laughs> um, we get it and we put it onto the CAT scan you know, machine. And um, 
As a writer, we're always listening to dialogue, interesting facts that we can use in our books, and I heard something really rather amusing there. This mummy's CAT scan had been, they'd been trying to get the mummy scan for months. The museum wanted to do it, the doctors wanted to do it, the problem was the hospital lawyer would not let it happen. The lawyer said, in this country, we have rules on patient confidentiality. <laughs> this patient cannot sign the consent form. So that's what took months. Finally, the museum signed the consent form as the patient's legal guardians. Um, and then it was there, it was, they were able to go forward. So I'm watching this CAT scan. If any of you have seen CAT scan, you know, they're just x-rays, or cross-section x-rays of the body, and it's one way to study a mummy without damaging it. And so we saw the, the, the brain, and as expected, the brain was, was missing. If you ever wondered how they got that brain out, there's only one hole in these mummies, and it's through the nostril. They used to think, because Herodotus said so, that you would introduce a hook and you'd hook that brain and pull it out through the nose. Um, that's not how it worked. It turns out that how they did take the brain out was they introduced a kind of a whisk and they, they liquefied the brain in place. And it was drained out as liquid through that one hole in the nostril. So we're looking at also at the, the chest and the, you know, the torso and the organs have been taken out. And we got down to the thigh bone um, and there was a break in the femur. And I just assumed that that was the cause of death. As a young man, maybe he'd fallen off a horse, broken his thigh bone, and bled to death. Um, but I'm also looking at this CAT scan from the point of view of a writer. And the writer, the crime writer, is always saying, what would be weird here? What would be so shocking? And I thought, oh, what if we saw buried deep in the muscles, underneath all that wrapping, a bullet? Think about that <laughs> for a second. How would a bullet get into an ancient Egyptian's leg? Uh, clearly, it's not an ancient Egyptian. So uh, that became uh, um, something, a book that was called Keeping the Dead. Um, but it all came because I was interested in the dark side of things, and in this case, Egyptian mummies. Sometimes the darkness comes to you, and it's not that you're out there searching for it, it's that it's at some kind of a weird darkness comes into your brain and, and it inspires a story. And this is, now I'm going to talk about playing with fire because I honestly don't think I came up with the idea myself. I feel as if something in the universe told me I had to write this very dark tale. I was in Venice for my birthday a couple of years ago. And um, Venice is a beautiful city. It's one of my favorite cities in the world. And um, I had a couple of glasses of wine that night, went to bed, and I had a nightmare. I dreamt I was playing my violin. I'm an amateur violinist. And there was a baby sitting next to me. And the music I played in my, in my dream was somehow dark and mysterious. And the baby's eyes glowed red, and she turned into a monster. I woke up and I thought, what, what is this all about? And I mean, I know now what it was about. My first grandchild was almost due to be born then, and I think it was my underlying anxiety about what this child would turn into. Um, but so I, I'm, that next morning, though, I'm not thinking about my grandchild. I'm thinking, there's a story here. There's something to do with music and darkness and children turning into monsters. So I walked around Venice that day, just mulling over, how do I turn this into a book? Because I don't write horror, I don't write paranormal. How does this work? 
And I ended up in um, the old Jewish quarter in Venice. If any of you have been there, you, it's a very peaceful, strangely peaceful, and almost, almost a spooky place. And they have a lot of memorials there dedicated to the 246 Jews who were deported from Venice during World War II. Um, almost all of them died in Auschwitz. Um, and there was one wooden plaque that just had names and the ages of those victims. And I remember seeing towards the bottom of the plaque a couple names with the last name Todesco. And it was as if somebody said to me, there's your story, you just, your story is right here. Write about the Todescos and music. <coughs> and that's how Playing With Fire came about, is because I had a nightmare and I happened to see this name on this plaque. Um, so the story is basically about um, a composer violinist named Lorenzo Todesco. Very, very talented. He plays a 200-year-old violin made in Cremona from his grandfather. Um, and it's the run-up to World War II. It's the run-up to the, to the Holocaust. And what does his family do in, in Italy as they're watching what's happening in Germany and in Austria? How do they react? And you see how Lorenzo ended up composing this beautiful piece of music called Incendio, which translates as fire. You see the circumstances for why he composes this piece of music, and you see what happens to the Todesco family. Now, there's also a modern part of the story, because 70 years later, that piece of music that he wrote, Incendio, ends up in an antique store in Rome. And a woman violinist named Julia buys it and takes it home. Every time she plays Incendio, her three-year-old daughter goes berserk and does something violent. She turns into the monster of my dreams. So that's, you know, that's the story. It's, it's how this one piece of music connects two people 70 years apart, um, one in Italy and one in Boston. Um, and as I probably have already hinted, a great deal of this story has to do with what happened to the Jews in Italy. I had a little bit of trouble justifying my writing about this, because I feel like it's not my story to tell. I'm not Jewish. I'm Chinese-American. And I felt that maybe it wasn't, it wasn't proper for me to tell this story, because it's not my heritage. Then I was able to approach it in a way that I felt I could justify it. And that is um, because I'm a member of the same tribe that Lorenzo and Julia are members of, and that is the tribe of musicians. Um, my best friends are musicians. Um, and there's, some, there's something really wonderful about the fact that a violinist from China, a violinist from Italy, and a violinist from London can all be together in one room. They cannot understand each other when they talk, but you put one piece of music in front of them, and they will all understand what that music is telling them, even though the composer may have done it 200 years ago. This, that is the true universal language, is, and that is music. Um, the other thing that musicians, particularly string players, understand is what is it like to put a wooden box under your chin to run a bow across it, and to feel it vibrate. You know, when you're, when you're playing the violin, it becomes part of your body because you have to have contact with it. Um, violins are made of wood, and the instruments are alive. They truly are still alive. Um, there's a saying in, among musicians that if you don't play a violin enough, that um, it goes to sleep the sound actually dies, because the wood needs to have this constant vibration to keep, it, um, to keep the sound um, as resonant as it should be. Um, the, the bond between musicians and their instruments is so powerful that it's probably longer lasting than a lot of marriages, uh, and a lot more intimate. Uh, I have two violins, 
one of my violins was made in Dublin in 1776, which it's not known as a violin-making city, um, but every time I play it, I like to think that every jig and reel that was ever played on that fiddle is still in there and alive in that wood. But my other violin I own, um, I bought in Cremona, Italy. Cremona is a city of violins. It's where Stradivari was, it's where Guarneri was. And if you go there now to buy a violin, because the city is still the city of violin makers, all these luthiers who are working there send their instruments to one sort of central shop. And you go in there as a, as a violinist, and you, they will leave you alone for hours to play all the instruments until you find the one that you are meant to have. Um, and I know it sounds a little mystical, but violins and musicians are a little bit like Harry Potter's wand. The wand chooses the wizard, and there's something about the instrument that is meant for one particular person. Um, as a mother, I, I always describe it as being like being in a room full of screaming babies. You can hear your own child in that You know which one is your own child. And so I remember playing this violin, all these various violins, and I suddenly came up to one, and I thought, oh, it's you, you know? And that's the one I have at home now. And it's something that you keep for most of your life, and it's something you, you pass on to your children and your grandchildren. These are, these are instruments that are meant to go through the generations. So the book is about music, it's about violins, but it is also, um, sadly enough, about something that really happened, and that is, that is the Holocaust. Um, I did, my research for this um, was about something that I really didn't know much about. I mean, we know what happened in Poland, and we know what happened in Germany and in Austria, but a lot of us aren't really aware of what happened in Italy. 90% um, of Jews perished in Germany. In Italy, 80% of the Jews survived the war inside the country, even though it was fascist, even though they did have uh, deportations. Um, so I was interested in what made Italy different. I love Italy and I love Italians, so there's something I wanted to, I wanted to believe the best about that country. Um, now there are a couple of things that make it somehow practical that they survived. One is that they did not start uh, deporting Jews until 1943. So it was fairly, fairly late in the war that, this, that they were in danger. But there's also something about the Italian character. And I saw one sociologist say, you can find the answer by just driving today in Rome and looking at how Italians behave behind the wheels of their cars. Um, if they don't agree with the law, they just won't follow it. And that may be part of what happened in World War II. Um, but eventually, of course, it did happen. Mussolini, um, uh, he himself was probably not particularly anti-Semitic, but he had to go along with what Hitler wanted to do, and he had to go along with what his ministers, um, who, were, who were indeed anti-Semitic, wanted to do. Um, to look, if you were a Jew in uh, 1937 Italy, and you were paying attention, you might have been able to see the danger coming toward you. And the first clue would have been in the media. Um, it, I think it's true even today. The first clue about danger shows up in the media. The newspapers back then, the first thing they did was they, they fired their Jewish journalists. So there was no opposing point of view in their editorials. Then you could see editorial um, control over what stories were played up. If, um, if a Jew did something good, it wasn't reported. If a Jew did something bad, it was on the front pages. So just editorial control can sway public opinion. Um, it's really quite, quite 
um, frightening how much how much control newspaper editors have and, and television. Um, you know, those who who uh, control Fox News, for instance, have completely swayed the United States when it comes to political leanings. And so you could see that also in Italy. Um, then the editorials began. Um, stories like, oh, if you are um, a Jew married to a non-Jew and you have a child, your child is much more likely to get tuberculosis. Um, now, in fact, there were a lot of intermar there were a lot of uh, mixed marriages. Um, of the Jewish marriages prior to World War II, 44% were to non-Jews. So you can see that they were fully integrated into Italian society. They were doctors and bankers. They were they were uh, at all levels. They had been there for for centuries, so they felt very safe. But watching the newspapers would have told them that bad things were coming. Um, then the laws started to get passed. In 1938, the first law, um, they, they fired all Jewish professors and teachers. And if you were a student, you could not study in university. So all of a sudden, all these unemployed um, Teachers, all the empl uh, employed, um, the intelligentsia were kicked out, and students could no longer continue their, their education. Uh, and then the next law that passed was, uh, there was a ban on mixed marriages. Um, it threw into question the legality of the current marriages that were already mixed. Then the laws became even, even crazier. You couldn't play music on the radio if it was composed by a Jew. You couldn't teach a textbook in college if it was written by a Jew. Um, now think about the Todesco family, my, my family of, of, of heroes that I'm following. What would they have done? And I imagine that the same conversations around dinner tables would have been held. Do we stay or do we flee? Um, for younger people, it was an easy decision. A lot of them just decided to emigrate. But if you'd been in the country for a number of years and you had elderly parents to take care of, you couldn't leave. You had a business. You had a home. You didn't want to, to leave this country that you'd been there, you know, that had been yours for generations. Um, Eventually, things started to get worse and worse. And finally, in 1943, the first arrests began. It happened in northern Italy, from Rome north. Rome, Milan, Florence. Um, they started rounding them up and deporting them. It didn't happen in Venice for quite some time. And this is, this is one of these heroic stories about Venice that always moves me. And sometimes I'll burst into tears, so excuse me if I do. But Venice was late. In, in rounding up its Jews because of one man. His name was Dr. Giuseppe Giona. He was a Jewish physician, a doctor, and he was, out, he was unemployed. Um, what he did have was an amazingly responsible job within the Jewish community. He was the guardian of the documents. He knew what every, where every Jewish family lived. He knew their names. He sort of had the, the city registry of who the Jews were. And one afternoon, an SS officer came to his office and said, hand over the documents. We need to know where all the Jews are in the city. And Dr. Jonah said, come back tomorrow. I need to get the papers together. That night, he burned all the documents that in his possession, and then he committed suicide so that that information could not be transmitted. He understood that this was a very dangerous thing they were asking, and he wanted to make sure that he was protecting his community. Well, that gave the Jews in Venice a little time, a little advance notice, and, and they began to, to emigrate or hide or go into the countryside. But um, then in December, it's, it happened in Venice. It started with air raid sirens. Now, Venice was never bombed by the Allies because we thought it is a, you know, it is a beautiful city. It's a historic city. We did not want to, to damage it. Um, but they had air raid sirens that night, 
and it was to hide the sounds of what was happening around the city. Um, a hundred Jews were rounded up that night. They were put into a school, locked into a school, with no food for two weeks. These were elderly people, women and children, families had no food for two weeks. They survived because local Italians gathered food and threw it through the windows to keep them alive. So another example of how Italians were different. They were trying to protect their neighbors. Uh, eventually, they were, they were taken to the local train station, put aboard a third-class passenger train, and allowed to write letters to their friends. And the letters tell you exactly why the Holocaust was able to happen. The letters say, um, we're all fine, everything looks okay, we're going to a labor camp, we'll write you when we get there. And then they're never heard from again. They had no idea what was going on. Uh, there was a story of one train that had a breakdown, and everybody was allowed off the train, and then they all got back on the train, and the train continued on its way. They left behind one young man accidentally, and he ran to catch up with the train and probably died in Poland. Um, so, you know, I was in Auschwitz um, a couple, of, about two months ago, and what surprised me was going into one room where you saw some of the objects that people brought with them to this death camp. They brought cooking utensils. They clearly had no idea what was going to happen. They thought they were just being relocated. I mean, you don't bring pots and pans if you think you're going to a death camp. So, uh, the same with the Italian Jews. They had no idea what was going to happen. That's the sad part of the story, but the part of the story I wanted to focus on in, in playing with fire has to do with the heroes, the heroes of this particular era, and that was the ordinary Italians. What did they do, those who were not Jews? Um, and you can see that if you wanted to save your neighbor or your friend, you were risking your life. There were almost 200 priests and Catholic priests and nuns who were executed by the Nazis for hiding people in monasteries and in convents. There were entire villages where they all get banded together to, to save their neighbors. They would hide their neighbors, and the people were executed for that. Um, but there were police officers who were told to round up their, their local Jews, and the night before, they would go from, from door to door and tell them, I'm coming to arrest you tomorrow morning. And, of course, overnight, they would all disappear. Um, and then there were small acts of, of uh, defiance, which I found sometimes amusing. There was a, there was a male, a, post, a postal worker. He knew who the local informer was. And whenever the local informer would write something addressed to the local SS office, that letter would mysteriously disappear. It would never get, it would never get delivered. So in, in, in you know, ways that are big and ways small, ways very courageous and ways just underhanded, um, Italians really did try to protect their friends and neighbors. And you know, because 44% of, of, of Jews were married to non-Jews, there was a good chance your brother-in-law or your cousin was Jewish, even if you were not. Um, now, in the course of writing this book, I told you how it came to me in a nightmare, the darkness sort of descended upon me. Um, the really weird part about it is that halfway through writing the story, um, after describing this music in Chendio in great detail, a piece of music that did not exist except in the story, I had another dream. And I woke up and the melody was in my head. And because I play the piano, I was able to play it immediately that morning. Um, it took me six weeks to fully compose the violin and piano part, but the, the, the piece of music Incendio only came to being because I had written a book. So the, the music is, a, is about the story, and the story is about the piece of music, and they both came together. Um, I wrote this composition, 
And I sent it to an acquaintance in London who, who is a music producer. He, he works with labels, uh, classical labels. And I said, I don't know if this is any good. Can you tell me? And he emailed me back and he said, I know precisely the person who needs to record this music. And it's a violinist named Suzanne Howe from Toronto, Canada. And uh, he sent her the music. Um, she's an international concert star. She's played with 50 orchestras around the world. And the first time I heard from Suzanne was on the phone. She called me from Paris. Uh, I'd never met her. She called me from Paris. She said, I'm practicing in Chendio right now. My windows are wide open, and there's a whole crowd down below listening to this music. So she recorded it, and we'll play it um, in, a, in a few minutes. Um, and that's how the music came to be. It was just because I've had two series of dreams. Uh, the story came to me first, and then the music came to me. And then Suzanne recorded this, this, this piece of music. Now, here's the final weird thing that makes me think, even though I'm, I'm scientific and logical and I don't believe in the paranormal, there's something weird happening in this story. Um, in the book... Lorenzo plays a 200-year-old violin made in Cremona. When Suzanne recorded Incendio, she recorded it on the violin that she plays in concert all the time. And she told me later after she read the book, oh my God, you, can't, you won't believe this, she said. But in 1938, the violin I play would have been 200 years old and it was made in Cremona by Guarneri. So the final sort of weird coincidence that happened. Um, and before... Um, we play the slideshow. I just want to say one thing about Suzanne's violin. Remember how I told you violins are alive, they need to be played or they go to sleep? Well, Suzanne's violin, by, made by Guarneri, was a very famous violin. It had been performed on by some very well-known violinists through the centuries. Um, and because it was so beautiful and so valuable, it had the misfortune of ending up in, um, in the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City in a glass case. Now, violins should not be imprisoned in glass cases. It was played once a year. Um, so this poor violin was in this glass case for 12 years, not played, just something pretty to look at, and that's not where they should be. One day, Suzanne was given permission to play all the instruments at the Metropolitan Museum of Art, and she was playing all the violins, and she came to this one, which she now calls Charlie. She took it out, and she said, listening to it, was like listening to music through layers of dust. But she said there was something still there. It had not gone to sleep yet. So she said to the curator, may I play this violin for a while? And they said, fine. And four hours later, she's still playing the violin. The curators are all standing around, awestruck, and they said, oh my God, you did something we didn't think would be possible. You woke up the violin. Because in four hours, it went from almost dead to this full sound because she had been playing it. So they called up the owner of the violin, who was a very wealthy Midwesterner who had the violin on loan to the Metropolitan. And they said, you must let her tour with this violin. She woke up your violin. So she now tours with the violin. I think she's had it for about five years now. Charlie is worth $10 million. How do you travel with a borrowed $10 million violin? Um, well, the insurance company requires that it must always be at her side. So when she travels on tour, it cannot be left in the hotel room. It must go with her. She, if she goes to the restroom you know, at a, at a, at a restaurant, she can't leave it in the, in the care of anybody. She has to go in, in the restroom with Charlie. The Charlie can never be in the boot of any vehicle. Um, and she is single-handedly responsible for Air Canada's rule now, 
that if you are a professional musician traveling with your violin, you board with the infants and children. So you always have overhead space. Um, so that's, that's the story of, I mean, how it just sort of weird, went weirdly full circle, a dream about a violin and music, and, and the violin just happens to be exactly like the one in the story. Um, so many coincidences. And then there's, there's this, this element of music that I never, I've never, I've composed um, fiddle music, but I've never composed classical music before. And it all happened because I sort of feel like the universe gave this story and the music to me. Um, and the music is Suzanne playing it. Um, I don't know how your sound system is. I, I hope it's full-throated because it would be lovely if you could hear the sound, Charlie's incredible sound. Um, we'll play this and then I'll talk a little bit about Rosalie and Niles.
if you have any training in music, you may have, have heard um, some intervals, which we call devil's chords. They were forbidden in the medieval church because they're unpleasant. They're considered satanic. Um, I, I put a lot of those in here. So whenever it kind of jarred on you, that was a devil's chord. And I wanted, I wanted to give you a feeling of why it would drive somebody to do something violent or possibly drive a child to turn into a monster. Um, so, uh, just a few words, because I, I want to have time for questions, um, about Resolient Isles. I don't know how many of you watch the television show. Um, it's based on my, my series of novels starring homicide detective Jane Rizzoli and medical examiner Maura Isles. It is now in its final season. It's gone on for seven years. I know, isn't it sad? Um, but I'll tell you why it's, going, it's, it's being cancelled. Um, it's going out at the top of the ratings on cable television in the U.S. It's not because of low ratings. Partly it's because of the demographics of its viewership. Those who are in charge of the channel feel that the, that the viewers who tend to be female and tend to be a little bit older are not the viewers that advertisers want to reach. So they're trying to remake the television station for young men. And Rizzoli and Isles had to go. Um, but if you do watch it, it's on Alibi uh, Sky, the Sky Network. Um, the last season, um, the sixth episode, I get a cameo appearance in it. And they did a weird thing with it. They, they, it was sort of like this weird self-referential thing. The writers, um, they wrote a scene where Dr. Moore Isles wants to leave the medical examiner's office and become a mystery writer and moved to Maine. So she and Jane go to a crime writing convention, um, and while they're there, they're introduced to Tess Gerritsen. So I get to come on stage and shake hands with my, my two characters. <laughs> um, anyway, I, um, the, 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 the 12th book in the series uh, will probably be out next year, and it's called Strange Girl, and I just, I just finished it. Um, so I have enough time now for some questions, Hiya. Um, I think you're one of the greatest authors of our time. It's, you're really amazing. Um, I just wanted to ask what gave you the inspiration for Warren Hoyt? Warren Hoyt. Um, he, was, he first appears in the book The Surgeon, where Jane Rizzoli first appears. Warren Hoyt actually started talking to me. It's, it's very strange. Um, I find that the best books, the easiest books to write are when a character just starts whispering in your ear, and that's what happened. He just whispered in my ear, and he said, Hi. I'm, I look exactly like everybody else. I'm perfectly ordinary, and this is what I do. So it's the idea that, again, back to my Uncle Michael, killers are sometimes completely ordinary and normal-looking people. And one thing that came out of Warren Hoyt was after I wrote The Surgeon, which, if you haven't read it, is about a serial killer who performs operations on his female victims while they're still awake and aware. Um, it's really kind of a horrific story. So I went on book tour with that book, and a man came up to me to get his book signed. Perfectly ordinary looking man. And he leaned over and he said, thank you for writing this book. And I said, why? And he said, you allowed me to enjoy my fantasies. <laughs> Got his book signed and walked out. So there are Warren Hoyts in this world. They don't all act on their fantasies, but they're out there. And he was willing to confess that to me. I mean, true confessions. So, yes. <laughs> enjoy all your books. Uh, 
Did you find it annoying that the uh, television characters are so different? They to are. The ones in the book. Yes, they are very different, but that's American television for you. Um, in the books, Jane is, is an ordinary looking woman. She's not attractive at all. You know, she's just average. She's short. She's got scruffy hair. She has no sense of style. And on television, she's played by six foot former model Angie Harmon who is gorgeous, absolutely go more gorgeous in real life than, than even on television. Um, that's what happens on American TV. They don't allow normal people to star in television shows. Um, part of it is, is advertising. I think advertisers want to, you know, they, they want to buy ad time on a TV with glamorous people on it. So the television show, show has two really gorgeous women. It's a lot funnier. It's very much fashion conscious. Um, it has a medical examiner showing up at crime scenes and high heels, um, not anything that you would see in the book. But I, you know what, I cannot argue with what they've done because they've, they've, here it is seven seasons later, it's very popular, it's found its own fan base, um, and it sells books. That's all I care about, it sells books. Okay. Thank you. Tess, you, t you talked about being inspired by um, horrific and um, unlikely events. Um, what inspiration do you think there is in the reality TV show star becoming President of the United States. <laughs> I thought it was performance art. I honestly did. When it all started off, I mean, I, I hate to waver into politics here, but I am totally fixated on this, on, on the American election, I have to say. Um, and the first time I thought this is all a joke was when I saw the, the doctor's note that was written on behalf of Donald Trump. His doctor wrote a letter to the, to the media saying, if he, is, if he runs for president, he will be the healthiest candidate in the history of the United States. And he said, we have performed numerous medical tests on Mr. Trump, and they all came back positive. <laughs> this was actually his doctor's note. When I saw that, I thought, no doctor wrote that note. And yet it was signed by an MD, and, I th and that's when my husband and I said, it's performance art, but I think um, he now believes he can actually be president, and that's, that's what's scary. So. Hi. Um, you're saying with Playing With Fire, you had to find what part of yourself belonged to the story. Yeah. And um, in all the myriad of stories that you've done, um, is that always the case? And how can you find yourself in the most unlikely of settings for yourself? Uh, I always have to f attach myself to one of the characters to understand why I'm in the story. I, I mean, for me, for me, very much the story was about Julia, the, um, the violinist, and her, her fear of her own child, because I'm a mother, and that's, that's how I was really able to tell the story to begin with. Um, but it's not always, I mean, I don't always need to feel that way. When I'm writing, say, uh, a medical thriller, I usually identify with the doctors because I understand what they're going through. And when I write the Rizzoli and Isles series, I usually, I usually identify with Maura because she's very much like me. We both want explanations for the unexplainable. And it bothers us when people do things that are not logical. And yet that's what humanity is all about. We're always doing illogical things. We want, we want a formula for everything and we can't have it. And that's why Mora goes through life constantly um, sort of in flux, you know, always in crisis, not understanding the world around her. Hi, Tess. Um, I just wanted to ask, when you do your research, mm -hmm. what sources do you use? Do you use books, newspapers? 
Google? <laughs> I use everything I can. With this particular um, book, Playing with Fire, I, I relied on two particular books about um, Jews in fascist Italy. Um, and uh, one of them is by Renzo De Felici, and the other is, uh, I'm blocking on her name, but it was a female author. Um, and then I also went to the Jewish Museum in Venice. But it depends on the, on the subject matter. You know, I, my most research-heavy book was Gravity, and I, I spent a couple weeks at NASA. Um, I spent, um, you know, pretty much two years doing the research, talking to um, aerospace engineers and everybody um, who I needed to for that particular book. So um, if I'm familiar with the subject matter, for instance, if it has to do with medicine, it may only take me a couple of weeks to do the research. If I'm unfamiliar with the topic, it can take me years. Hello, Tess. I think you are amazing. Um, but my question is, have you ever written something that's actually scared yourself? No. <laughs> um, you should. I, uh, you know, I always liken trying to scare yourself as a writer as like trying to tickle yourself. You can't do it, right? Because you know what you're about to do. You, you're expecting to be tickled, and so you can't be tickled. Um, but I, I find that because I'm while I'm writing, I, I'm paying attention to what's scary, what's scary, and so it's the process that drains the fear out of it for me. Um, my mother was an immigrant from China, and she loved taking me to horror films. She loved the American horror film, which is where I learned how horror can actually be entertaining. Um, and the, the one thing my mother said to me when I started publishing these books, she'd read my book, she read The Surgeon, and she said, it could be scarier, you know. So. <laughs> Clearly, I, had, I, you know, I never did reach my mother's pinnacle of success, which I, I never did. I never was able to scare her. Oh, and you know what? I just want to add one more thing while I'm here. Um, I've embarked on a new way of storytelling. My, my son, Josh, and I have just finished filming our first feature horror film. Um, I wrote the script to uh, um, Island Zero. He filmed it, and it's now in post-production. It's now, it's now with the composer getting its, its, um, its film score, and um, we hope to have it ready for film festivals this fall. It was just a, a lark for us. We thought, well, you know, I write books. Let's try making a movie together. And it's just a different form of storytelling, but much more collaborative, because now, instead of just me and the paper, we're working with a film crew of 20 and, an, and a... And a cast of 20, so um, it, was, it was a lot of fun, and we'll probably do it again. Oh, it's called Island Zero. It's about a little island off the coast of Maine where it's inhabited by fishermen, and um, they depend on the ferry to bring all their supplies, and one day the ferry just doesn't come, and everybody's phone has gone dead, and they send a fisherman to the mainland, and he doesn't come back. And then about a week later, dead bodies start, mutilated bodies show up on the shoreline, and this group of people realize something really bad is happening out there. But what, um, what I insisted on, I wanted to make a horror film where the main character, the hero of the story, is a middle-aged woman. So our star is, uh, is played, um, our, our main character is played by a 58-year-old actress, and she's the one who saves the day. <laughs> My demographic, right? <laughs> Is it true that the uh, film, The Gravity, is made without your knowledge? That's a long answer, but <laughs> I, I will, okay, I have five minutes. All right, here's my story. Um, I, how many of you read the book, Gravity? Um, okay, some of you have. It's about a woman, do medical doctor astronaut, who's stranded aboard the International Space Station when the rest of her crew dies in a series of accidents. 
Um, I sold the film rights to New Line Cinema in 1999. By 2000, they had written, they had a film script, but they were unhappy with the third act, so I rewrote it um, and included scenes of satellite being shot down, the debris destroying the ISS, and the female astronaut left drifting in her spacesuit in orbit. That film never got made. And then in 2008, I heard that Alfonso Cuaron um, was about to direct a film uh, at Warner Brothers called Gravity, about a female medical doctor astronaut who gets stranded in space after satellite debris destroys the shuttle and she gets stranded aboard ISS alone. So I thought, oh gosh, that's a lot of coincidences, right down to the title. But uh, as far as I knew, maybe somebody just described the plot to him, and, and he did it. I, I, you know, I have no proof of anything, and they can always claim that it's just a coincidence. Um, until the movie came out, and a deep throat, an, a deep informer, um, called my literary agent and um, said that when Tess's book was in development at New Line Cinema, they hired a director, and it was Alfonso Cuaron. So, yeah, I mean, there was a direct link now. Um, and I was, you know, I didn't really care about the money. I just care, as I say, it's all about selling books. And I wanted to have that, that it at least be credited so that more copies of Gravity could be sold. That's really all I cared about. So we did, um, I did get an attorney. Um, we filed a legal complaint. But unfortunately, we were defeated in court because... The movie was made by Warner Brothers. By then, Warner Brothers owned New Line Cinema, so they had the right to make the movie. But they said they, don't, they did not have the obligations that came with that right, because it was a different corporation at the time. So essentially, they could have copied my book word for word and still gotten away with it um, without ever crediting me. And we were defeated twice on that one point. Um, and at that, at that, my legal fees at that point were getting pretty high, um, so I decided that it was more important that I retain the right to talk about it, um, and I have. Um, but since then, having talked to a number of uh, entertainment attorneys, I've been told that in Los Angeles, in the last 20 years, there have been lawsuits by 50 writers against major Hollywood studios. Every writer lost. So, including the, the horrible case of The Last Samurai, Okay, one minute. <laughs> Two screenwriters wrote a script called The Last Samurai about an American soldier from the Civil War who goes to Japan to, Japan to fight with the samurai um, forces. That sounds pretty specific, right? Kind of unusual. So they take it to a producer. Producer says, I'm not interested. A couple of years later, that same producer makes a movie with Tom Cruise, The Last Samurai, about the Civil War soldier who goes to fight with the samurai soldiers. So um, wh what had happened with the original script was that those screenwriters introduced, on purpose, historical inaccuracies. They were repeated in the movie. They, they sued and they lost. Which tells me that, you know, what, um, what I've been told by other screenwriters is what you do is you, you move on and you say, congratulations, I've written a script worthy of stealing. And that's all you can do. So thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this event by Harrogate International Festivals. Don't forget to rate and subscribe for this podcast. For more events, recordings, resources, and information about our arts charity, please visit harrogateinternationalfestivals.com.